you're afraid because every day, every night that I go to bed, I'm like, if I can't raise funds, then this amount of girls in Afghanistan will be left behind and I won't be able to help them. As powerful as this statement is, it's even more impactful once you know the story behind it. I'm Kimberly O'Donnell, and this is Accidental Fundraiser, a show from Network for Good that shares radically authentic stories from the trenches. Code to Inspire is an after-school program that opened the first coding school for girls in Herat, Afghanistan, in November of 2015. Their mission is to empower Afghan women through education and put them on a path to financial independence. Farishtay Farouk, founder and executive director, was born in Iran as a refugee after her parents fled Afghanistan in the 1980s. Growing up, she experienced immense challenges and discrimination, even in accessing such basic public services such as education. In this episode, she shares her passion for bringing opportunities to women in Afghanistan and how she trusts her team of volunteers and staff to carry out the mission. Because her background as a refugee is such a big part of her nonprofit story, let's join the conversation as she talks about the struggle to build a new life. From a very early young uh, age, I understood the value of education and that education is a fundamental human rights and everyone should access to it without any discrimination and being indifferent. My mom and my dad left everything behind, like every refugee going to a new country, you start life from zero. And my mom learned to how to stitch and make dresses so that by selling them, she could bring income to the family and invest in our education. So I learned how to be an entrepreneur from my mom and learned that great things start with empty hands doesn't matter where you are or what you have. The most important thing is that uh, you can use resources around you in your favor. And that's what my mom did. I was able to finish my high school in Iran. And then in 2002, one year after the fall of Taliban, we moved back to Herat, which is a city in the west part of Afghanistan that my parents are originally from. Like a lot of refugees, we thought that it's time for us to go back home and there might be more chances for us there. Coming to Afghanistan, of course, with a lot of challenges, talking about one year after the the fall of Taliban. The infrastructure was certainly not perfect, and especially the status of women going to school and accessing work was still very difficult. Although I was able to get my bachelor in computer science in Afghanistan, and then I received a scholarship. I went to Germany and I got my master's in computer science from Technical University of Berlin, went back and taught as a computer science professor for about three years in the university. So being a woman in technology, being very vocal and outspoken, I faced a lot of challenges, backlashes and threats in the community, which made me to think about how I can change the status of women in Afghanistan, especially in technology sector. And that's how I established Code to Inspire, January 2015, as a registered 501c3 nonprofit in the U.S. with the mission of giving technical opportunities for women that can be translated into work opportunities and that help them to be financially independent. What an incredible story, especially with bringing your talent together with a real need for women and girls in Afghanistan. As you started your nonprofit, what were some of the hurdles that you encountered? 
I think there's two different aspects. One was the administrative aspects of it, just how not to easy, re- right? Yes. It's not easy starting <laughs> a nonprofit. No. Just even the paperwork. Exactly. <laughs> I think paperwork was the most difficult and challenging one. You want to file the right papers, so of course you need maybe a legal person who can help you. And of course, I don't have a legal background, so it was difficult for me. What I did, I posted on my social media um, accounts and ask for if anyone has a background in law and can help me with setting up a nonprofit in the U.S. And I got actually a response from one of my connections who was based uh, in New York and I met her and she helped me actually for free pro bono with all my filings. And after the filings, we get the status of being incorporated and then you have to file for getting the exemption status for a 501c3, which is a longer process and involve more paperwork. And again, with the help of the legal person, we were able to do that. So one is the, of course, the the legal aspects of it, that you want to make sure you are filing everything properly. But then once the filing is done, now is the aspects of, okay, like you have to raise certain funds to make the idea that you have happen. And for that, you have to knock every door that I think you know and is possible for you, reaching out to all the people in your network. And because... It's something very new and it's just like an idea that you're presenting to people. A lot of the time you may face that people say, oh, like once you have it up and running and you have some results, come back to us and we might be able to invest in your idea. At the beginning, it's very difficult. And I think at the beginning, the people who truly believe in you as a person and know you and understand that this can be something that can happen then they invest in you and they believe in you. And that's like a people that like at the first, I try to reach out and ask for support, either in-kind donations or monetary donations. So you relied on your closer network really to help lift up Code to Inspire initially. And now today, you have a number of both individual sponsors and corporate sponsors, right? Do you have a sense of how many you might have? Yes, I can say that at least um, 50% of our donation comes from individual donors and then the rest come from corporate sponsorships, giving program and partnership with companies who are giving back either through their employee matching programs, grants and fellowships that they have. How much time do you typically spend on fundraising? Oh my God, it's like a nonstop work. (laughs) You have to engage your community when you have to update them, but also like you want to tell them that what's your goal for this year, how much you want to raise and how much that money goes for particular mission and goal that you have. Just updating them, engaging with them, letting them know that what are you up to, sending them personal videos, personal emails and messages, sending them gifts and updating newsletters. So you really like constantly have to be on top of everything to make sure that your supporters and donors who believed in you and who keep continuing investing in your mission are updated and They feel that they are part of this journey and not excluded only. And you're not only reach out to them in the time of crisis. You you want them to feel that they are part of this journey with you and they go through every steps of this process. 
Now, was that something that you knew from the onset that you wanted to keep all of your supporters truly engaged in the work of Code to Inspire and what was happening in Herat? Or was it a learned skill? It was certainly a learning process for me. When I started, we used to use third-party programs for sending newsletters. I used to have either online or offline Excel sheets to keep track of our donors and everything. And it was very difficult because it was very scattered and it wasn't in one place uh, that it could keep track, but also could keep track of our performance, have some sort of like monthly or weekly reports that I can see, okay, I missed this month and what's the reason that I missed raising funds this month and what's the reason that this month I raised more money. The first couple of years I used to work like that and it was very frustrating and then we were able to get part of the Network for Good platform which really helped me a lot. Not only the platform to put everything in such a organized way but also being able to talk to a consultant who can help me with, okay, what's your plan for this year? Okay, if it's your plan this year, let's come up with some timeline and like really come up with a very nice way of organizing everything and how to keep track of it. And I think that really helped me personally a lot to learn more about how to engage with the donors, but also just the housekeeping of keeping track of our donors and performance. So that was certainly a great lesson to learn and I'm still learning. You said fundraising is nonstop. So can you share some of the things that you do on a regular basis that kind of help with that momentum? Sending at least a monthly or biweekly newsletters, it's very important just as updates. I think one of the mistakes that I was doing before, it was when you send an update to your donors, it's just an update. You just want to let them know what are they, what's the program is up to, if you had issues, if you had success, just to let them know so that they understand about it. But I always give an update and then at the bottom, I always put the donation links too. So in this case, the donors are confused. They don't know either are you updating them or they're asking them for something. And I keep doing that and, and I was like, not getting good results. And then with the consultant that I had, she said, let's try only giving the update email, only update and take the donation links. And then when there is a particular ask, we go for it. And then I started doing that as strategy and it was really like helpful and with a big turnout. And so it is very important to understand when you put the content out there, what are you asking from your network? Is it an update? So keep up the update. If it's an ask, then you have an ask. And I think this was a big lesson for me to learn, but also how to manage my calendar. What are the big dates in the calendar year that you can create a campaign around it? Either it's a year-end campaign, either it's a Giving Tuesday campaign, either it's a back-to-school campaign. So these are like some of the dates that then I learned how to create a campaign or a momentum around them. What would you say is probably one of the hardest parts of fundraising? I think the hardest part is recruiting new donors, how you can make people excited about your mission and get them on board 
would also keep them to stay so that they can turn to a recurring donor. I think this is something that still is challenging. What kind of channels you have to try to get the attention of the new donors and then how you can keep them still excited about the work you do so that they can turn to a recurring donor and stay with you for a longer term. And also the lapsed donors, like the donors who helped you maybe the first year of your mission, but then they, for whatever reason, they're not as active, how you can get them back again on track and make them an active donor. So this is, these two are still challenging for me and needs more work to get back people again on the track. It is a challenge. You are an entrepreneur. You're an a social activist, you are passionate about the work that you do. What drives this? How do you get up every day and go, I am going to, to push harder. I'm going to be stronger. What lies beneath? It's a combination of fears and hope. You're afraid because every day, every night that I go to bed, I'm like, if I can't raise funds, then this amount of girls in Afghanistan will be left behind and I won't be able to help them. And the hope is that when I raise that funds, it empowers and enables all the girls to access free education and become financially independent and help their families. So the combination of both being afraid of what if, if I can raise funds to help these girls and the hope that I have to do my best to raise the funds because then I will change a lot of lives. I think that's like something that keep me always motivated. And of course, like just seeing the stories of how our coding school helped a lot of our alumni and graduates to find jobs. Some of them even make double or triple than the men in the family. So some of our students are making more money and helping their family and themselves and in reinvesting themselves to continue education. It's something that is very close to my heart, and I will keep doing what we are doing to help as many as girls we can in Afghanistan. Tell us a little bit about how Code to Inspire works, like how the school operates. Before the Taliban takeover since August, our school was a physical location. We had one location in Herat, and it was an after-school program. The students who were coming to our school were from 18 to 25 years old, and we offered different coding classes like mobile app, game design, full-stack uh, web dev, and graphic design. Students were coming to the school. The classes were in person. Our school is free of charge and it's only for girls and women. And then it's a one year after school program. And once they graduate, we help them with employment opportunities, either in community or outsourcing projects to them. But then unfortunately, after the Taliban takeover since August, we had to close the school due to safety reason and um, security concern. And still up to now, the school is closed. We hope that at some point we can reopen the school. But as of now, we took an online approach and we shifted the entire program online and make sure that everyone has a laptop and internet to get and keep up the classes, which we are doing right now. And hopefully we would be able to support more girls in our online classrooms to, to, to access free education. So you've had to pivot your entire program. And how is that going? Is there still as much participation and interest? Regarding the engagement, 20 to 30% of the data that we have of our students are either left Afghanistan or left Herat. 
due to the current political situations and what happened. So with the remaining, we are trying to make sure that they can get online and access to our classes and courses. And also the next step plan for us is to expand the program to other cities in Afghanistan. And because with the current situation, being at home is much safer for our students and uh, a lot of women. And because they're at home, then they have more flexibility to get online and learn. So that is something that we're trying to push to to get more resources on the ground and help more girls in Afghanistan get online and get into our curriculum and coding classes. One of the things that I know that you have done is encouraged the use of cryptocurrency in payment for women. Can you explain how that works? Yes, definitely. Like before even the Taliban take over, there was a lot of issues with the infrastructure in Afghanistan, especially through banking and financial institutes. So as an organization, when we receive donations, we do have a bank account in the U.S. because we are a registered organization in the U.S., but then sending funds to Afghanistan would be a bit difficult. Although we do have a bank account in Afghanistan and we are a registered organization in Afghanistan as well. But using banks not only take a couple of days, there's a fee involved. And also majority of the times, sometimes the money will rewire it back and you have to go to the bank and talk to them and see what was the reason. And so like this kind of delay in sending the funds would make a big uh, issue for, for the work you do. And then also using other financial institutes like Western Union, there's a limit of how much you can send, but also there is also a cost involved here too. Either you want to send it online or you have to find a Western Union branch, which we also used it as an alternative that actually last year, end of the year, we had to use Western Union, but then we also faced a lot of challenges with them. And that's why early this year, we were thinking what we can do to make it faster. And then our team investigated and they found out that there are actually a couple of local exchange places that they can convert crypto into either dollar or Afghani. And then we start sending crypto to them. And since then, we entirely sending our operational and money for our students that work remotely through crypto. Let's talk a little bit about fundraising in a crisis. The Taliban began to enter Afghanistan this past summer, July into August, and it was dire. Being here in the U.S., how did that feel? And how did you just go straight into action with communicating and fundraising for Code Inspire? Yes, because it was a very uh, sudden change of events all of a sudden in Afghanistan. Everything has changed. They closed the banks. The Western Union wasn't working for a couple of weeks in the time of crisis that you need the financial institutes be working. Majority of them were shut down. Banks and Western Union and any sort of money transfer financial institutes. So no one really could send any money to Afghanistan and people need money. Either they wanted to go to banks to take their money that they had in the banks because they wanted to just have the cash in hand or they had to leave Afghanistan and they needed money to pay for their expenses. Not being able to access the money that you own because of a third party or any political climate change is uh, is frustrating for a lot of people. Some people even left Afghanistan with their old money in the bank account because they couldn't access it. So just the freedom of how you can access to your own finance and keep it in a way that wherever you go, the money will go with you. It's very important. And I think for us, 
during that time, cryptocurrency donation was a big support for what we were doing. We uh, started reaching out to our net either through crypto donors and we received cryptocurrency donation, which through that we could send it to Afghanistan in a time that no bank was working, no Western Union, but we were able to send the funds to Afghanistan. I received personally messages from our students who were the main breadwinner of the family that they lost jobs and they're struggling to even pay for basic things. They don't have food. And it was very heartbreaking to see that these families are now going through this. So we did a survey. 85 of our girls reached out to us regarding their families. And with the estimation that we came up $200 per month for family, average um, six to seven people can help them to pay for rent, food, any medical emergency. And once we had that in, in hand in the breakdown, and I think that's very important in the crisis time, that whatever you're asking from your donors and community, it's very clear where the money going to go and how many people it's going to support. So I sent the newsletter through the network for good for our entire community. I told them exactly 85 families, $200 per month, it's going to cover this. And if they can help us to raise these funds within two weeks, and to my surprise, we could raise actually $23,000 within a week of just to ask because it was very clear and you gave them a timeline of when do you need that. The same as our crypto community. So I think it's very important to act at the time of the crisis with very clear ask, with very clear timeline and with very clear of where the money going to go and how you're going to distribute it so that the donors feel comfortable that it really going to go in the right hand of people in need. There's also a lot of motion that exists in a time of crisis. I appreciated seeing your video that really showed the concern that you had for your students, for these girls and women in Afghanistan and just the country as a whole. As a fundraiser, has to be very vulnerable and authentic in, in your communications. How did that feel as you were doing it? I totally agree with you. I think that being authentic and just let the donors and supporters know what are you going through, it's very important. Even emotionally, if you feel like sad about certain situations, if you feel like you're just like hopeless, these are not only people who are coming to you on the time that you're asking for monetary donation. These are the people who believe in you and who are part of this journey. So as much as you can be honest to them and share your feeling with them, they feel much more, I think, included and comfortable with you because you want to make it personal. You want to like also like maybe have them see some of your students, see their stories. Who are these people? Who are you? I think the video and either it's a voice or also like in person makes a huge impact on people rather than just sometimes sending uh, a written text. So as much as you can communicate with them through videos, either personally or a group video with your students or the people they are helping, it's very important for them to see the faces, to experience that other side of the help that they do. Do you have any other advice around fundraising in a crisis? You know, how you are pivoting your message so that you're able to reach donors, build awareness, ask them to share with their networks. It just, again, to be honest with you, be very clear of what is the situation on the ground, what you're asking, what's the timeline, who you're helping, and then show them back what happened after. If you keep that 
hold together, I think the people who are supporting you will appreciate it and will get back to which I've been experiencing. When I asked for the immediate fundraising for our 85 family of students, that the response was very quick from our donors. Then right after that, I started to send them personal videos, a thank you newsletter, and just get back to them as quickly as you can so that they feel that they're, again, like getting updated and are aware of what's going on. Great advice. So we've talked about fundraising in a crisis. We've talked about how you started your organization. I'm curious what it's like for you to be the executive director of an organization that's located in another country and, and you're here. How, how did you get all of that up and running? It's interesting because, yes, I've never been able to go back to Afghanistan since 2012 just because of my pending immigration. So I've done everything remotely. I think there's like, for me, one factor is to find the reliable people on the ground that you feel so comfortable with them and they're as passionate as you regarding the mission. So when I wanted to start the, the Code to Inspire, I reached out to my former students in computer science and I asked them, this is my idea, who is interested to help me as volunteers? And I had a couple of them who were very excited and who helped me underground with everything, finding a place, recruiting students, raising awareness, purchasing everything. So they literally helped me a lot be my eyes on the ground. And it's very important to have that element of honesty, trust with the people you're working on the ground and the passion. And then the beauty of technology is that like, it doesn't matter where you are. If you have a laptop and internet connections, you can make a difference in any part of the world. And I use that in my advantage. I raise funds online. I recruit boards online. I promote our work online in social media. I talk to my team online every week. We keep track of our notes. So technology really enabled me a lot to be on top of everything and keep track of everything. And I think that was also a winning point for me being in the United States and my work entirely in Afghanistan. That's a great point. There are a lot of organizations who are nervous about using technology to fully operate their nonprofit organization. And here you are just embracing it, going, I have to do this because I want to have this organization in Afghanistan. And the only way to, that I can do it is to do it through the use of, of technology and to have faith and trust in your volunteers. And that can be a challenge as well. We have a lot of accidental executive directors, nonprofit leaders, and fundraisers who are nervous about really empowering their volunteers. We'll hear from them, oh, my volunteer, I have a board, they don't do a lot. We have volunteers, but ah, they only do so much. You've had to put a lot of faith in your volunteers. Was that hard in the beginning or what advice do you have to share? I might be the rare case because I didn't have a lot of issues with them just because I was their professor in the university and I knew them for a couple of years and I knew their personality and they also like they're very excited about doing this work. And once we raised enough funds in a year, then I proposed them to be hired as part-time employee and later on full-time. And I wanted to give them this environment that I care about their growth 
And I acknowledge that they were with uh, the organization the first days that was very difficult and do it for free. So I guess uh, just embracing the contribution and then giving them a voice that I can hear them. Like I think what was very important for me to also hear their perspective and feedback on the ground, what they think is right. Maybe I suggest something, but it doesn't make sense because I'm not there on the ground. And the thing that I'm suggesting maybe is not going to work well, but then they have an idea that might work because they are on the ground and see. And I think for me, giving them this space that they can share their thoughts and feel welcome was something that they kept them very excited and stay with the cause. How do you continue to feel connected to the instructors, to those volunteers, to the paid staff, to the girls from overseas? We do have internal group chats. We use Telegram and different messaging apps. So we have our own group chat with the team, project manager, mentors, and everyone. And then we have group chats for each class with the mentor in them and myself. And then we have a group chat with the alumni. So we are always on a daily basis. If I see any opportunity, I'll send the link to those groups. With my staff, of course, every week we have call just to overview the weekly performance, but also it's the goal for the next step. And then on a monthly basis, I have the call with my board and the team in Herat so that they both can get on the same page. So again, you're using technology to stay very embedded in the classes and in all of the day-to-day activities, which is truly fantastic. So as we talk about what's next for Code to Inspire, there's one thing that I picked up on right in the beginning, which was your sharing that because of the Taliban, now you've been able to expand and are expanding your reach beyond Herat and into further parts of Afghanistan. Is that something that you had originally planned and you had to fast track it, or was it just based on the dire need now? We wanted to expand the program anyway, even before Taliban, because we received a lot of requests from girls around Afghanistan. But we were a little bit cautious about just expanding the physical location and having an actual place because of a lot of logistics. And that was always a concern for us. If we open a physical location in another city, then there is security concern, the logistic concerns. There's a lot of infrastructure issue too. But again, with the Taliban, and uh, the opportunity of online make it much more easier to expand because at this point you only need to give the girls a laptop and internet connections and they're at home safe and they access to the system that we are giving them and either continue their education or hopefully will do remote work. So that's much more of an easier approach rather than having a centralized place that can be traceable and everyone can come and unfortunately can be a target rather than this decentralized approach. What's next on the horizon from a fundraising standpoint? Uh, It's the same. If you want to keep our program totally virtual and expand to other cities, so we certainly need more laptops. We certainly need more internet packages and also maybe smartphones for our students to get in touch in the group chats and everything. Once we have a better idea of what cities we're going to expand and how many students we want to outreach, then for that amount, we're going to raise funds to buy laptops, to buy internet packages, smartphones, and give the equipment to our students. And let's pivot over to 
major gifts. Do you have a lot of major donors and how have you cultivated those relationships over the years? Yes, we do have some major donors and it's a combination of people who personally knew me for a couple of years and the work that I've done and they just have major gifts every year. There are people who just learned about me online and then they reached out and they were very excited about what we do and then started giving to an, to our organization. And then these are some of them are people who got to know about me through my boards or the people who knew me. And they've been very generous and continue giving to our program every year. That's great. Do you meet with many of them one-on-one or do web calls, anything like that you do? Yes, in-person meetings when it's possible. I met with some of them, but certainly personal email, personal video, or even call just when they have time just to talk to them. So I'll try to keep the communication options as wide as possible. Is there anything that you've learned over the past few years as you've had those? Are they as scary as people think that they will be? It's interesting because I'm an introvert person and I really hate cold calls. It would be very difficult for me to just have a conversation with someone and then especially when it comes about asking for money and donation. So when it's about people that you know them or you're getting to know them and I feel much more comfortable and I think people really appreciate it. Like they feel very happy and And they feel that they're part of this journey with you. And I also, it makes me excited and happy too. So it's good also to know the other aspects of people's lives rather than just being a donor of what's their hobbies or what they enjoy, what what are the other things they do. And when you have this more kind of personal conversation, that's very valuable. And I really enjoy when I have those conversations with our major gifts donors or any donor who's interested to talk to me. I always ask my donors, if you want to talk to me and ask questions, I'm happy to have a call with you. As you have established your nonprofit and have grown it over the past few years, you've actually been in the media quite a bit. How was that initially? And what advice can you give our listeners for managing those very public interviews, things like that? Always good to be as public as you can regarding your mission, not only because it will reach out to a lot of people to learn about your cause to understand what's the situation on the ground, you know, and just raise awareness about it. But it can turn out to some contribution. It can be people get interested and they want to support your cause. So they donate, they want to offer a volunteer or they want to come to your board. So like that also helps you to open more doors and avenues for partnership collaborations. So any possibility that they feel comfortable being on that platform, they want to be, they should take it because then that's one more opportunity for you to reach new audience. Your mission is very serious and inspiring and empowering, but I go back to the word serious. How are you finding time for you and for some fun and being able to just feel a balance day to day? in the midst of a crisis, in the midst of really hard times. I think it's very important for you as a person who's leading the organization full time. And when a time of crisis happens, especially very unfortunate, like the Taliban and the women education, to have some time to just have for yourself, because you are going through a lot of different emotions. And it's very difficult for you to digest all of them. 
and it put you in a mental shock and I state that you uh, will be very overwhelmed and then you may mentally broke down and you don't know what to do so just taking some time during the day maybe just simple as listen to your favorite music uh, I go for a run it's active health-wise but also like mentally you can really style a lot of stress and even making a, a favorite cup of tea for yourself and just sit down and have some quiet time it is very important because it's a past not only with what happened to my organization but also my family back in afghanistan and a lot of other emails of other peoples uh, that reached out to me for support and help rather than our students i couldn't sleep well i couldn't eat well i lost a lot of weights and it was very difficult because then if you are the only person who everyone put their hope on you to help you don't have time to get sick because if you get sick and you take a week or so and on, you go through some emotional and health issue, then that's not good for the organization and the people you're helping because everyone is relying on you, especially in the time of crisis. So yes, just to acknowledge that what's going on around you, but also put it in a perspective that you are the one who is going to help and you deserve to have some time for yourself it can be an hour two hour per day divide in different time zone you have to do that otherwise it's certainly not very healthy for you mentally physically and not for the organization your mission to help those people and how are you feeling today i feel okay i think i feel a bit better than maybe august and september just because it was very overwhelming with a lot of things now that more or less, I don't want to say life is getting back to normal because it's not normal, but at least you have an understanding of who's there and what you have, some clarity regarding this situation, then you might be able to put your head around, okay, what's the next step? When things are not clear and chaotic, it's very difficult to come up with a plan. And that clarity makes a lot of stress. So right now it's a bit better for me to project and see what's the next step and I'm trying to get back on the track of doing more running and take care of my health and more mental caring but still I think that there's like a heavy weight on my shoulder because the lives of all the girls my family a lot of people who reach out to me with the same ask and you feel sometimes very insignificant that you're only one person and you can only do certain things and I wish I had more resources and powers to do more. And I think the feeling of powerless makes you sometimes down and you have to acknowledge that and that's okay. So I'm doing my best. I'm trying my best to stay positive so that I can help more girls in Afghanistan. As we wrap up, I'd love it if you would give our listeners one piece of advice that you feel would just help them as they're either navigating a crisis or starting a nonprofit or just trying to fundraise for the first time. If you have faith on what you're doing and love what you're doing, remember that nothing is impossible. People will come to help you and uplift you. And that's the beauty of how, as human, we get together to make something happen. So you will be okay. Now, for our listeners who might want to learn more about Code to Inspire or to reach out and ask you questions, how can they get in touch with you? They can check our website, codetoinaspire.org, and our social media, especially if you're very more active on Twitter, my social media, or Code to Inspire, to see the updates from school and our current activities. 
Now it's time for the State of the Sector, brought to you by Network for Good. When a crisis hits, it's important to immediately assess what and how that crisis might impact your organization. For Farishtay, when the Taliban began moving into Herat, she began communicating with her supporters and her donors through her newsletters, and she used video and pictures to really make her fundraising appeals very clear. She also surveyed her beneficiaries to come up with a data-driven fundraising goal so that she could show each and every donor how their gifts would make a real impact on the crisis. Now, if your organization or your community is not in a crisis right now, there are ways that you can stay tied to current events. There's a concept called newsjacking. And the concept behind newsjacking is to inject your mission or your brand into current events. An example of this would be in 2013 when the Super Bowl had a blackout, Tide posted on social media an image that was all black and just had white letters on it that said, we can't get your blackout, but we can get your stains out. <laughs> and so it was kind of a comical way of uh, injecting a brand into a current news topic. Now, those news topics can be serious. They can be humorous. It's important, though, to really get it right. So I encourage you to do a little research before you try this because you really want to be able to leverage speed, accuracy, and absolute common sense when you're posting something that is tied to a current event. You may even want to run your idea by a couple of people to just kind of make sure that it sits in the right spirit. Also, be sure as you think about this that it doesn't negatively impact someone's first impression of your organization. And again, it can be light and airy or it can be serious. It just needs to tie well to your mission. To wrap up this episode, what are the three things that you need to take away from this? Let's go. One, be clear in your communications. Two, have faith in your volunteers. And three, don't neglect your own well being. Yes, yes, you can. I'm Kimberly. See you next time on Accidental Fundraiser. And be sure to follow along wherever you get your audio.